Welcome to Miked Up with Cairo Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Thiel. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's given the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to podcast three. We had a ton of questions over the elbow after podcast number two, and these were all over lateral elbow pain. And why would it not be going over cubital tunnel syndrome? Today's podcast is going to go into lateral epicondylopathy and really separating those chemical sources of pain versus mechanical sources of pain. Tim's going to give you a couple of clinical pearls that are really going to help you in practice. We're also going to go through exercise videos and where you store your videos and why it's so important. And then in the spirit of the holidays, let's go over the one thing on all of our mind, and that's how to avoid the dips in your office visits during the holidays. I'm going to give you one of my greatest marketing tips that we ever use during Thanksgiving, and I think it's going to help generate some new patients in your office. And then finally, we're going to round out with some some business tips talking about the book EOS and how we use it to run Cairo Up and also Premier Rehab. And then as a special gift to you, we're going to talk about my favorite beer, and you can guess what state it's from. Take a listen. All right, welcome to Mike'd Up with Cairo Up. I'm your host, Brandon Steele, and my co-host, Tim Bertelsman. Today, we're going to talk about something interesting, and the reason it's interesting is because it's fueled by a subscriber's question about the last podcast on the elbow, and this uh, this is going into more lateral epicondylopathy, but the, the, the purpose behind this podcast is really going into those moments in practice when your patient education is just as important as clinical excellence. Because sometimes we have to tell a patient and we have to do things to a patient that they don't really want to hear. They want to get out of pain. That's the only reason they came in your office is to get out of pain. But there are some times that we need to um, understand their condition, teach them about their condition, and then in the case of tennis or lateral epicondylopathy, unfortunately put them in a little more discomfort before we get them out of pain. So that's what we're going to go through today. Uh, one of my favorite, um, I'll say principles in, in care. Is you have really, principles. I, there's there a few. Uh, they're right below my morals and ethics. Uh, is that we really have to understand the type of injury a patient has. And once we can really understand that condition, then we can self-select those methods, those treatments that are going to help with that specific condition. So if it's a joint that's stuck, we need to move it. If it's a joint that's moving too much, we need to stabilize it. I don't care how you move it. I don't care what kind of manual therapy manipulation, what you do, just move it. Uh, but if you need to stabilize the tissue, I don't care which exercise you do. I don't care what um, things you do in your office or machines. Just utilize those types of modalities, meaning to stabilize, stabilize the area. So uh, let's get into the podcast. First, we're going to start with the questions of the month. Two questions this month. Number one seems a little off base, but what is a nurse's favorite color crayon? Uh, yellow. No, red. Sometimes they have to draw blood. The second question, more pertinent for today, are what are your thoughts on injecting tennis elbow with a corticosteroid? We see this done so often. Is it something useful? Is it something not, not useful? 
And this was the exact question that we got from our, our subscriber. And I, I wanted, I want personally wanted to answer that more or less put it in a podcast because you see this on a daily basis. Uh, and, uh, someone has gone in to see their medical doctor, a pain management physician, and they already have had a corticosteroid or one has been offered to them. So really we have to answer what would these two methods um, be useful for? So when should we consider a corticosteroid? Uh, in my mind, I would say if I just have ir irretractable pain, uh, I've, I've gone through a trial of care, they're not getting better, I'm not helping them, and then and they're losing sleep or they can't work, you know, we have a, a severe disability where maybe that corticosteroid could help. However, in the other 99% of cases, um, I would avoid it like the plague. And unfortunately, um, we have a patient that can uh, get out of pain quickly with a corticosteroid, or I can convince them to cause more pain in the case of tennis elbow um, issues. Because a lot of these tennis elbow issues are not tendonitis. They're actually tendinopathies where we have degenerative conditions due to the patient's hobbies, their habits, their sports, wh whatever it is that person is doing. And they have a failed healing response to that tendon and now they have their problem. So we need to somehow figure out how to get these patients better, which requires a lot of times creating a controlled inflammatory reaction and then strengthening that tissue, which sometimes can cause more pain. So we, I took a look at the, you know, those are my opinions, uh, to be honest with you. I had to look at the facts, though, because the purpose of this podcast are to somewhat separate the facts from the opinions. Um, and I think all of us can have our own opinions, but not all of us can have our own facts. So when we look at the uh, our friends from the Journal of uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine in July of 2022, and we'll put the, uh, the actual article uh, in the, the show notes, that there are some things that we can do to get people out of pain when it comes to tennis elbow. And it's all centered around building up the capacity of that tissue, uh, which is progressive loading programs. Now, don't think of it as stretching versus strengthening. Think of it as how can I start to load that tissue uh, to help that tissue start to heal and build up capacity. And what we know from the research is that if of, of small uh, um, benefit. Uh, there's a difference between concentric and eccentric. There's a difference between isometric and concentric. Concentric and e I don't care. Neither should you. We should absolutely start to load patients in a way that they're not going to increase pain above a four out of 10. That the research is fairly clear that eccentric is slightly better, that it does a better as far as increasing strengthening. But really, the game of rehab is convincing someone to do something they're not doing, uh, they haven't done yesterday. So we have to make sure the exercises are easy to do, they're easy to follow along with. You have printouts or emails with videos, finding simple ways and platforms to communicate with your patients. So the first thing is provide exercise. That's what's going to be the best short and long-term results. The number two finding of this paper is stop injecting these things. Injections, corticosteroids, actually stop the healing process. They stop vascularization. You need blood flow. That's how we heal. The other part of this was actually slightly um, confusing to me is that I thought tendon needling or what we'd call dry needling would help these patients get out of pain faster and have a better result. They didn't find that in their results. So I'm not uh, going to stop dry needling my patients. We have someone in our office, uh, Ben, who does a phenomenal job. And we get great results with dry needling. Um, however, in this paper, they didn't see that as adjunctive to the resistance training. Um, and the second part of that is that the corticosteroid 
did not only not help them, it actually made them worse. So we really need uh, need to consider um, uh, not letting our patients get injections if they really don't have to. Uh, and sometimes they've already had the injection. In that case, I'm not going to disparage the patient. I'm not going to talk bad about another provider or their treatment strategy. Uh, but we need to take in consideration, if you have a corticosteroid in that, that area, it will prevent you from getting the best results. So... Tim, what are your thoughts on dreading? It's something we have in our practice. It's not something you do. It's not something that I do. We have a third provider. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are the conditions that seem to be helped with dry needling? Yeah, great question. Uh, so Ben in our practice who provides dry needling, I think one of the reasons that he got into it is because Ben is someone who also helps us vet research. So over the past couple of years, there have been abundant studies saying that dry needling works really well for a number of conditions from neck pain to back pain, but especially the tendinopathies and the plantar fasciitis, that there's not a week that goes by that we don't see multiple studies saying that dry needling works. So uh, research said, yes, this probably does. And then Ben went through the training uh, and now does dry needling in our office. And anecdotally, it works, that it's something that's been particularly effective for patients. I always look forward to sending over those tougher rotator cuff tendinopathies, the lateral epicondylopathies like we're talking about today. They tend to do really well with a few sessions of needling. Patients find it fairly comfortable. That was another concern of mine. Is it going to be something people are afraid of? And while there may be some hesitation from some some people, I've had no one who said, no, I won't do that again. They found it comfortable. I always liken it to kind of getting poked with a piece of fishing line. It's really not uncomfortable, and it does exactly what we're looking for. It stimulates that controlled inflammatory reaction for the patient. So going off that, that same um, line of thought, you know, what do you think about when a patient comes in to see you and they have um, chronic tendinitis? <laughs> right. Well, they don't have that. That we know from the literature that after about 72 hours, the histologic signs of inflammation are gone in a tendon. Now, remember, we're only talking about a tendon. We're not talking about all other tissues in our body. Certainly other tissues can stay inflamed for long periods of time. But tendons don't. After about three days, that, that inflammation goes away, especially if that stressor sticks around, that your body recognizes, look, it's expensive for me to send in inflammatory products to try to heal you when you're doing things all day long to continue to make this irritated. So I quit. I'm going home. And the tendonitis goes away and it starts turning into a degenerative tendinopathy. Now we recognize that any problem, whether it be a rotator cuff tendinopathy, a lateral epicondylopathy, medial epicondylopathy, Achilles tendinopathy, patellar, quadriceps, all of those are apathies. There's a lack of inflammation. There's a lack of the natural healing process going on. So our treatment has changed accordingly, that really this is how Chiroop started, that 10 years ago we had a patient uh, who came in with a chronic rotator cuff tendonitis. I treated her as a tendonitis, and on the third visit, she called in and said, I'm not going to be coming back, I'm no better, and I'm going to see my doctor. So most of his patients say. And many, many. <laughs> but this one stung. And they all sting, that when we've all been in that situation, and unfortunately you recognize this patient trusted you to provide them care, and, and I failed. So we dove into the literature and said, what do we really need to do differently? And learned a couple of things. Number one, 
the the concept of scapular dyskinesis was really becoming much more prominent. That our patients who are coming up, they're raising their arm, they're getting impingement of the supraspinatus tendon and the subacromial bursa, that tissue is going to continue to get irritated if the shoulder blade doesn't rock out of the way. So I realized I wasn't addressing the scapular dyskinesis well enough. And number two, the even bigger concept, is that I was addressing a tendonitis or what I thought was a tendonitis. And, and Mary's tendonitis wasn't. It was an apathy. So I was using ultrasound and being nice to it. The treatments that we used to use, like those things, and ice, and um, maybe NSAIDs or cortisone injections to suppress that chronic inflammation didn't work because it wasn't chronic inflammation. It's a chronic degeneration after 72 hours. Now, yes, you can have inflammation for the first day or two, but if you continue to irritate that tissue, the inflammation does go away. Now, all the treatments that you see, when you go to a conference, you look at the vendors, and you have shockwave therapy, which is a machine that drives in a shockwave. It used to be lithotripsy, and now it's used in the tendinopathy market and plantar fasciitis market to help stimulate inflammation. And cold lasers and um, pin cushions, like what Ben does with his dry knee transverse friction massage, and IASTM, which IASTM is instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation like Factor. If you haven't taken a Factor class, be sure to check that out. Tremendous information that applies these most useful concepts that we're developing. And now when we treat a patient, we have much better outcomes because we're actually bringing in inflammation in controlled fashion as opposed to suppressing it. Our outcomes changed and our patient uh, expectations changed that instead of dreading that patient who has a shoulder tendinopathy, we're excited about it. All of the ChiroUp subscribers can check out those protocols. Every tendinopathy protocol in ChiroUp is certainly the thought process of generating a controlled inflammatory reaction. Now, we don't want to do that for an acute disc. We don't want to do that for somebody who has a cervicogenic headache or an irritated greater occipital nerve. Those patients may not like increasing inflammation, but our chronic tendinopathy patients absolutely do, and that is the standard of care that will now work. So really it's about learning new strategies, and I think that unfortunately as we uh, go through practice, we have to continue to stay on top of it because, I mean, when you were in practice, or really in school, I mean, when did you guys start to convert from leeches and bloodletting lobotomies to spinal manipulation? Was that in the early well, leeches really they they were still in the sea at that point in time we really couldn't even get them on land so um that was a little after i had graduated so really when we come to the tendinopathies i think that um it's all about finding these weak links that in the musculoskeletal system uh, based on the positions and the way people are moving that they're going to expose different areas uh, some of it is based on the actual location and, and that location is also dependent on age you know if you look at the elbow i think 2000 maybe 19 we did the uh, the condition report for little league elbow and we, we see these traction apophysitis happen at the, the same area that we're going to have our medial epicondyl uh, condyle issues and we you see, you'll see a tennis elbow in an eight-year-old that doesn't exist uh, that tendon stronger than the bone the same thing in the medial elbow and and unfortunately when we have these children who have open growth plates uh, that the actual uh, growth plate is two to five times weaker than all the surrounding tissue. So you're going to expose that when you're throwing a baseball or playing a sport. In fact, that lateral epicondyle doesn't fuse until 8 to 13 years old. Um, I'm sorry, excuse me, 12 and 16 years old. And the uh, meetup kind of doesn't close to 15 to 17 years old. So really it's a game. And what we play is where's the weakest link? Yeah, that's we talk about that a lot, that it doesn't 
really matter what tissue we're talking about, it's all like a glass. And when the glass overflows, that's when the tissue becomes symptomatic or fails. In every tissue, whether it be the medial epicondyle or lateral epicondyle or ulnar collateral ligament or the extensor carpi radialis brevis tendon, whatever you're dealing with, if you put enough stress into that glass, you're dripping into the glass and eventually it's going to overflow. It's just some glasses are naturally weaker and smaller, depending on the age. That if you have a little leaguer, it's going to be the growth plate that's a weak link. As you get a little older, it's going to be the insertion of the tendon onto the bone. And as you continue to stretch that over time, then maybe it's the ulnar collateral ligament in a pro baseball player, which then turns to Tommy John surgery. But everybody has vulnerability. Every tissue is a glass. And eventually, if you put enough stress on it, it's going to overflow. And that stress at the elbow, that one of the things that we learned, here's something that you'll want to pencil for, that the valgus torque forces are appreciable in adolescence of 18 to 28 newton meters. And it, but professional athletes endure stress five times more, 90 to 100 newton meters. So we wanted to know what is what does that mean? Because 90 to 120 newton meters, yes, I recognize that's five times higher than what a little leaguer is gonna throw, but what's that equate to? So I asked a, a friend who's a biomechanical engineer, uh, biomedical engineer, and he said that this would be the equivalent of putting your arm in a vise. So now hold your arm out, put it in a vise, tighten it up on the humerus so that your forearm is free. You can put it in into a cocking position if you'd like, and then get a 25 pound weight from your basement or from the gym and drop it on your forearm from 10 centimeters. That's what's happening each pitch in a professional athlete. But they're going to do that 100 times, 105 times, maybe if you're a Mets pitcher, 80 times. But there's a lot of times that that's happening, and that's a lot of stress on the elbow. And so what happens from that? Well, I think that I love that illustration because it's not the act activity. Um, our bodies are very good at healing themselves. It's the healing. And what we'll see, you know, you talked about the shoulder a little bit, but the risk factors for rotator cuff syndrome aren't activity. Uh, they're actually cholesterol issues, diabetic issues. It's those things that limit the, the, the ability for that tissue to heal. So uh, unfortunately, when it comes to the elbow for the sake of this podcast, um, your repetitive wrist extension causes the irritation of that common extensor tendon. And unfortunately, you can have um, uh, a tear in there. That extensor carpi radialis brevis, just due to its location and the amount of torque put on it, will cause tearing, usually one to two centimeters uh, distal to its attachment to the lateral epicondyle. However, we think of this as a tendonitis, it's inflamed, it hurts. And while acute inflammation can happen, it's not gonna last very long. In fact, with our chronic cases, when they do histological studies, there is no inflammation process. So we now recognize that repetitive microtrauma does not cause inflammation, but rather it's a sign of a failure of that natural healing process. And now we're left with weakened tissue. We have disorganized, pathological, degenerated tendon that unfortunately is not going to heal. So we have to find a way uh, as evidence-based chiropractors to say, hey, this isn't a tendonitis. In fact, tendonitis are very rare compared to tendinopathies. And we need to find a way to build up the capacity in that tissue. We need to find a way to strengthen that tissue. And that's what we're going to do with our rehab exercises. And we're going to start to strengthen that. So, you know, getting down to it, you know, uh, Tim, how would you strengthen that tissue? So, um, as you said, I think very well that the research still says that, yes, probably eccentric exercises work better. And so here's my opinion as to why that's the case. Now, with all your opinion, what the facts? My opinion... 
is that when we're doing a concentric exercise, we're doing a negative and a positive and a negative and a positive, the tendon is under load the whole time, which is creating a stretch the whole time. And stretch is going to potentially cause some ischemia. So we're not getting as much vascularization. With eccentric, think of your bicep. You're just going to lower the weight down and then you're gonna take the weight out of your hand, return your arm to neutral and lower the weight down again. I think the eccentric might have something to do with loading the tendon, unloading, loading, and unloading, and allowing it to get some vascularization in between, because that's what we're looking for in any tendinopathy is vascularization. Now, there's no evidence to support that, but there is evidence to say that eccentric is probably better. But as you said a few times well during this podcast, just move it. Get some sort of exercise in there. Get some progressive tendon loading that the concept now, more than eccentric, is do a progressive tendon loading. Find out at what point that patient can tolerate the exercise. It's okay to have a little discomfort when you strengthen an injured tendon, a degenerated tendon that is, that a lot of times we want to avoid pain with our patients. Patients need to understand the difference between hurt and harm. Because that's a vast difference. If they stopped doing something every time it hurt, they'd have a lot of problems by the time that they checked out. If they're willing to to nudge discomfort and have a little bit of hurt without doing harm, that's the sweet spot. In tendons, it's very pertinent. So would you recommend most of your patients go to YouTube and find the exercise to strengthen the biceps in that case then? Absolutely, because there's so much good information there. In fact, there were three studies in the past uh, month that have said that YouTube and Google is, is a source of information, but it's not reliable. Unfortunately, as you know, and I know, and all of our listeners know, both of them, that you need to be a doctor. Oh, we're up to three listeners. Three. All three of you, so we'll call it a few now, (laughs) uh, those few listeners all know that that information has to be interpreted basically by a physician because you can find YouTube or Google videos or Google articles to say anything that you want them to say and, and recognizing, is this a vetted source of information? So we deliver our exercises uh, through Cairo Up, which all of you subscribers know is pretty simple. In four clicks, you uh, have created a condition report for lateral epicondylopathy, shoot it to the patient via email, and very shortly, as we'll describe at the end of today, uh, by texting. And the patient now has a description of here's what's wrong. They understand the tendinopathy. They understand what they should and shouldn't do, including their exercises and videos. You forgot the most important part, which you didn't even know you forgot. Tell me. We used to do YouTube videos. And what's the reason we stopped? It was because at the very end of playing YouTube video is what? Other bad videos. Yes. It, it, I mean, we did it in good intention. And once we recognized that as a, as a practicing provider, as my patient, like, oh, yeah, I saw your videos. And then, and, <laughs> and then I found some more. I found this now new that, diet oh. that's purely tuna fish. <laughs> yeah, it works uh, 70% of the time every time. Um, so all of our videos are now stored in-house uh, secure. So uh, it makes a big difference. So, you know, when we look at lateral epicondyle issues, um, one of the differential diagnoses is actually radial tunnel syndrome where you're getting compression of that radial nerve how would you make that differentiation well that's a good point just an article so uh, we did a blog a couple of weeks ago um, that if you don't subscribe to the blog by all means do that uh, whether you're a subscriber or not that's information each week if there's a new study that comes out about a more uh, appropriate test or treatment that will be able to <laughs> dr Steele's getting out the fine box because i me- mentioned something to sign up for uh, but but it's free and so that uh that blog will allow you to get the the most recent test or treatment and this one was about radial tunnel syndrome 
syndrome. It was a study that said radial tunnel syndrome coexists with 63% of lateral epicondylopathy patients, that there's irritation of the radial nerve. And it's not surprising because they live so close to each other. That radial tunnel is right from that radiocapitellar joint coming down through the supinator muscle, about two or three inches long, depending upon how long your forearm is. And there's compression of the radial nerve in there. So anytime that there's irritation at the lateral epicondyle, that's right at the edge of the radial tunnel. And we get irritation to either the motor or the sensory or both branches of the radial nerve. The way that we can differentiate those is the three Ps, the area of peak tenderness, the area of a paresthesia and provocative maneuvers. So peak tenderness, we know where it's going to hurt if you have lateral epicondylopathy. It's gonna hurt on the lateral epicondyle, so right on the bone. If you have radial tunnel syndrome, it will typically hurt about four finger breaths distal. So you can just palpate down your arm four finger breaths, dig your finger in there, and any neuropathy has the same test. Smash it. If it hurts, it's going to be uh, an irritated nerve. So if we have irritation four centimeters distal, radial tunnel, if we have irritation at the lateral epicondyle, more likely lateral epicondylopathy. Number two, is paresthesia. That rarely will somebody with lateral epicondylopathy have numbness or tingling into their forearm that could extend all the way down into the radial distribution of that nerve, which is the, the dorsum of the forehand. And number three is provocative maneuvers. That if we see motor weakness, that's going to be radial tunnel syndrome involving the, the nerve, the motor branch, the posterior interosseous nerve. If we see that the patient has Mills and Cosen's test, then that's typically lateral epicondylopathy. And then if we have a positive radial tunnel test, which we're going to poke on that radial nerve and say, is there increased symptoms, then that's a, a patient who has radial tunnel syndrome. The one other test that's gonna be positive for both is the middle finger sign or the New Jersey sign. So the middle finger sign means that you're going to have that patient perform resisted extension of their middle finger. Yes, that's going to be mildly uncomfortable for, radio, for lateral epicondylopathy patients because you are contracting the extensors but it's going to be slightly more uncomfortable for radial tunnel syndrome patients. And the way that we can differentiate is then to take their finger, middle finger into passive flexion and say, did it hurt more when you extended it? If it hurt more with resisted extension of the middle finger than passive flexion of the middle finger, we have a diagnosis that's likely to be radial tunnel syndrome. So those are the differentiation maneuvers. Again, you can review that chart uh, in the blog and it'll give you a, a deeper dive into each of those. Uh, one of the things I just want to add to that, I know it's kind of off topic, is bracing. That unfortunately, a lot of our patients with chronic lateral epicondylitis are putting one of those counterforce braces on there and creating radial tunnel syndrome. They're creating their own peripheral neuropathy. So there is a good amount of research just taking a carpal tunnel syndrome brace. Yes, I know that's at the wrist and putting it on. It does prevent the action of those wrist extensors to offload the tissues for both radial tunnel syndrome and lateral epicondylitis. Yeah, great, great tool. Um, and the whole protocol, you can just dive into Cairo up to look at the protocol for lateral epicondylopathy or radial tunnel syndrome to review all the tests, all of the treatments. And one of the things that you'll find is cervical manipulation that 70 yes believe it or not so say you know one of the things that we should make clear is on our podcast we talk a lot about soft tissue exercise rehab all those sort of things but i can tell you that dr Steele and i are both number one chiropractors i'm that, the number one you're number two. Oh, either way yeah we we haven't voted 
uh, more more than just internally here. But what we uh, what we do know is that we have lots of tools in our toolboxes, all of us as chiropractors. But if we had only one tool, it's absolutely spinal manipulation. In reality, I'm not sure what we're going to teach this group about spinal manipulation. You're already pretty savvy, so we're looking for things to say. Hey, here's one more tool that I didn't have before listening to this podcast that I do now. Maybe it's don't use a a, a, a counterforce brace for radial tunnel syndrome. And one thing that you do know is that spinal manipulation works. 70% of patients with lateral elbow pain have some sort of a cervical spine dysfunction. And we know that a lot of uh, lateral elbow pain actually comes from an asymptomatic cervical spine. So we don't want to forget that. And I know that we don't, but it's just one thing worth mentioning along the way. Uh, so let's get into the um, uh, the practice pearls. And I think that uh, one of the things that is concerning me is that we're, we're jumping right into the fall. And with the fall comes holidays. I love holidays. In fact, my favorite holiday, for those of you who care, uh, is Thanksgiving. Uh, in fact, one of my first years at Kairok, we made a Thanksgiving uh, dinner for my birthday, which is in April, for those of you, April 29th. You can send gifts to the address. And that was uh, this year, by the way, not one of your first years. And I was charged with getting a turkey. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with this, I thought that it'd be simple. I'll go to the grocery store and grab a turkey. There are no turkeys at uh, in, in April. April. <laughs> there, are, there are only turkeys around the holidays. So I went to four or five grocery stores. We had no turkey, but we came up with some, uh, some good substitute. Um, so I want to know, you know, as far as someone who's run a practice for, for 30 years now, um, is how do you avoid dips, um, in office visits and new patients coming in and level out those office visits over the holidays? Um, and after our break, Dr. Burles will be back with the answer. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for uh, listening to that. So the question is, how do we avoid the dips and level out the holidays? How do we make sure that our practice stays just as busy during the Thanksgiving week and, and holiday weeks as it does every other week of the year? And I have a very simple answer. You can't. That the weeks of the holidays are going to be tough. People aren't in town. They have lots of other responsibilities, and it's just not going to be full. So what we find in marketing is that we pump up the natural buying seasons and don't worry about the ones that are down. That if we know that 2% of our patients are going to respond to some sort of a uh, call to action during the holiday week, but they typically would respond at a 10% rate, then don't waste five times the money of promoting during those down weeks. Promote the natural buying systems and seasons. And when you do that, you're going to build capacity Overall, your months and years are going to fill, and you're going to, to achieve more balance, that everybody looks for balance in every aspect of their life, and they look for balance throughout their practice. But in reality, that doesn't happen. What we're really looking for is how do we pump up the high times. So don't sweat the low times. Do your best during the high times. If there's a holiday week, that's not the time for reactivation. It's not the time for promotion. The first two weeks of the year are not those times, but after that, it's fair game. One of the best things that we did this is probably four or five years ago was we always we always do MD lunches. We always do gifts. We do Christmas cards. We do all that kind of stuff. Guess what you have every single Christmas? You have Christmas cookies from your patients. You have Christmas cards that come in. You have a plethora of things come in your office. Dr. Burlesman had the idea of why don't we do a Thanksgiving card? And it was to, to medical doctors of thank you for you know trusting your patients and coming into our office. 
Nobody gets things. I've never gotten a Thanksgiving card. Um, and it's a time where they're not expecting anything. We have never seen more referrals in November. So one of one actually was the one idea you had was good. The one, <laughs> one idea. Um, so great idea. Because uh, something to consider if you work with any kind of just any healthcare provider. It doesn't have to be a, a medical doctor. A Thanksgiving card. Uh, touch unconventionable. Uh, unconventionable. Uh, don't check that on Grammarly. Uh, but it worked really well. That's uh, that's a great point. It seems like any time that we can connect to enhance a relationship, good things happen. Unfortunately, when we do that during the holidays, it just gets lost. So that's uh, that's a, a great point of something that you can do to help pump up the off times. So the last uh, second to last segment of this one is uh, what's happening in clinical practice. That last episode, we talked about our quarter four goals for our personal clinic, Premier Rehab. Uh, what are we going to do to try to make something different? We talked about our goals for outcomes and patient visits. Um, and one of the tools that we use to help us keep that on track is EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. It's a book that uh, anyone can purchase, and that book will teach you a simple system of how to set set the goals and how to make sure that they stay on track. Make sure that you're working versus working towards your working towards your dreams as opposed to just working. Climbing a ladder that's going to get you on a roof that matters as opposed to just a roof. And it has to do with systems, that in order for any of us to scale, we need reproducible systems. What you're going to find in practice is that when you you're have downtimes, you all of a sudden do everything right because you have plenty of time, and it brings an uptime. And then an uptime means you don't have time to do everything right, which brings a downtime. And that's the cycle throughout generations, but it's also the cycle in our practice from week to week. We need to make sure that, number one, we set goals. We need our one-year goals. We need our long-term goals. And we need then to set key performance indicators based upon those goals. So if you have a goal to have X percent clinical improvement and decrease wait time to X minutes, you have key performance indicators of what are your services, what are your collections, what are your reactivations. And I encourage everybody to make sure that your key performance indicators are not solely monetary. That we want to make sure that number one, we focus on the product. Number two, we focus on the delivery of that through business. So once we have key performance indicators, every single person on your staff should have their own metric that they need to live up to. That for a provider, it's X percent clinical improvement and X percent patient satisfaction. For a front desk, it's X percent cancellations. From a collections and insurance specialist, it's X percent collections. And from a back office person, maybe it's X number of reactivations. And from those KPIs saying that in order for you to achieve your key performance indicator, you need some projects. Here are some tasks that you can do. So we set these things called rocks. And rocks, if you think of, you remember the drill where you had a glass and you had some sand and small rocks and large rocks, and you had to put them into the glass and decide how do you get all of that in there? Well, the only way that you get all that in there is by putting in the large rocks first, followed by the medium rocks, followed by the small rocks, followed by the sand. If you start with sand, you'll never fill it. The big rock is going to sit out. Too often, we, we all have task lists, and too often that task list has a whole bunch of sand crossed off of it at the end of the day. So rocks are the things that your, your staff can focus, and you, can focus on on a daily basis to say, this is the most important thing I can do, and forget about the sand. 
And then make sure there's accountability, that you're having monthly meetings, weekly monthly meetings with your whole staff, weekly meetings with teams on your staff to say, how are the rocks going? How's it looking? What can I do to help you achieve your rocks? Your goal as the leader of that, that clinic is to make sure that you empower your team to be able to achieve their, their uh, rocks, that they were challenging, but you show them how to do it. And one of the tools that we use for that outside of the EOS book is we use a software called Traction Tools. We have zero affiliation with Traction Tools, but it makes our meetings really simple. We go through a meeting that now instead of just having a random meeting of news and a couple of things that need to be fixed, we go through the KPIs saying, here are your numbers. How are they doing? We go through the rocks. Here were your rocks for the quarter. How are you doing? We go through headlines of what people are doing well and what we may need to address. And then we go through issues. And issues aren't only bad things. They're also opportunities. And from that, we're able to keep our staff on track, keep all of those raindrops moving in the same direction so that it turns into a hurricane as opposed to a drizzle. And it gives us a much better opportunity to achieve those goals. Uh, Great point. You know, a lot of people want to know how to scale their practice, but they're not scalable. That if you want to run a business, this is how to do it. Now, we're not affiliated with Traction Tools or EOS. Um, if you want me to send you a signed book, I'll sign it, a Gino Wickman's book uh, EO, um, on uh, Traction Tools, uh, just send me a check for $200 at 4460 North <laughs> Illinois Street, and I'll sign it for you. Otherwise, you can probably find it online for a lot cheaper. Um, that's something important. Then another thing that talk- Dr. Burlesman talked about was the fine bucket of not too long ago is that this podcast is somewhat special. We're not affiliated with anybody. Uh, we're not going to bring other people on the podcast. We're not going to talk about products that are somehow paying us. We're not going to give you any kind of sponsors. We have no agenda. Uh, this is him and I uh, uh, having a couple uh, cocktails on a Friday, uh, just kind of working through the week and, and talking out loud. Uh, and that's important because th- this is fun for us. Uh, so once again, uh, before we get into the last section, if you have any questions, any concerns, any comments, any suggestions with Cairo, please let us know. That's what's going to fuel the future um, podcast. Uh, going into the last part of this uh, this podcast, upcoming events, uh, November 10th, I think I'm in St. Louis for Cairo Congress. Um, uh, that'll be a fun event to talk with the association leaders um, around the U.S. I think Dr. Uh, B will be in Stevens Point, which is actually where my cousins lived. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, they have a I'll keep the called, doors locked. Yeah, they have a brewery called Point. I think it's Point Brewing Company, or um, it's it, it is what it is. It's good. Although, if you go to Wisconsin, cheese. No, Spotted Cow Beer, Spotted New Glarus Brewery is phenomenal. Uh, December 10th. Um, I love I'll, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, December 10th, uh, I'll be in Oklahoma in the Tulsa area. Uh, so if you're in any of those areas, come check us out. We'd love to see you and meet up. Uh, new stuff in Cairo Up. Uh, so what are the new things that are happening in Cairo Up? Well, once again, we're always looking to get those condition reports out faster. We want to make sure that we make it easy on you to deliver those. Uh, within four clicks, you can take everything that you know about a condition and give it to your patient. Um, and we're also incorporating an email validator, incorporating a tool that now you're going to be confident that when you put an email into Cairo Up, that it's a real email. Sometimes, you know, that communication between the patient and your staff or them entering it in a digital survey uh, they might have put a, a wrong a character in the wrong name or spelled it incorrectly. Uh, my wife, her email address is steel. Careful. Oh, I guess I can't give it out, can I? Oh, man. I'll tell you what. I won't give you the entire email. The last part of her email is an L. Not a one, an L. So it's whatever the email is, L at gmail.com. Really limits uh, complaints. Well, it looks like a one. 
She's like, I don't know. I didn't get the email. I'm like, well, you made your email the most conspicuous thing you would never know what to put. Anyway, I'm going to get off that soapbox. And the last one is texting services. Super excited for this. Do you know the average person reads their text messages more than once? Meaning it's not did the email get delivered. Now when you're delivering a text, they're going to make sure it's going to be in their messages. They can access it from any time. It's going to be super handy for you and your patients to make sure that message gets delivered uh, and doesn't have any kind of spam or any kind of filters. Very good. So we hope that we've been able to deliver some information that's useful to you. Our big goal is Monday morning skills, that things that can enhance your practice, enhance your life. And the only way that we can do that is with your input. We are very grateful for any suggestions about ways that we can deliver products better. Carop subscribers, we would love to hear from you anytime that you have an idea to make that platform better. And I hope that you recognize that we work every day to make sure that that happens. We will make, make sure that we're relaying the information that you want most as long as you tell us what that is. So thanks for listening to this podcast. Hope that you enjoyed it. We'll look forward to seeing you next time.